podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments will fluctuate, which will cause prices to fall as well as rise, and investors may not get back the original amount they invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information and views expressed should not be taken as a recommendation, advice, or forecast. Hello and welcome to the Investment Podcast. I'm Catherine Ross, Head of Private Credit at M&G, and I'm joined by Fiona Hagdrup, a fund manager in private credit with a keen interest in ESG, to talk about sustainability in private credit investment. Sustainable investing from the value standpoint is now, of course, a major focus across the investment spectrum. And commentators across the industry have spoken of the paradigm shift in investing that they believe we're going through, with the swing to sustainability being profound, urgent, and irreversible. Now, this has been most obviously implemented in public markets, given the nature of the investment relationship and the levels of disclosure demanded and deliverable there. But another important investment trend is, of course, the appetite from investors for access to private market opportunities, where there's arguably greater potential for influence in promoting sustainable practices, but where there may be less in the way of disclosure requirements and challenges in providing tangible evidence and data that prove the sustainability of business operations. So are these two investment aims compatible with one another? That's what I'll be exploring with Fiona in this podcast. So let's start there, Fee. Is an allocation to private credit coherent with a desire to increase sustainability and investment in your view? Yes, it is. We've we've definitely reached a tipping point. Uh, ESG risk factors, sustainability are top of the list of considerations and demands from all stakeholders in in a company these days, including in the private world. And the importance of ESG integration, the enhancing of traditional credit analysis, such that it can reveal hidden vulnerabilities or, or strengths that might not have been captured otherwise by looking through an ESG lens, that's that's well understood by lenders to private companies. Uh, they're sometimes called non-financial attributes, ES and G risk factors, but we don't really consider them non-financial at all when a company's credit quality is so directly linked to its valuation, which itself is a reflection of market faith in the sustainability of its earnings. And if that faith isn't founded on confidence in care being taken over long-term issues, whether it's climate change or employee welfare, inclusivity, then then there's a huge financial impact potentially. So, encouraging private companies to broaden their disclosures, including the targets that they set themselves and, and to report on their progress in meeting them and asking them to enumerate the ESG risks and opportunities as they see them over the short, medium and long term. And crucially, who owns those risks? Who takes accountability for them in the business? Better to demonstrate their mitigation and their management to investors. Well, that's part of the ordinary course of lending business these days and is the foundation for sustainable investing. So ESG integration is a core component of credit analysis across both public and private markets, at very, the very least as an aspiration, both from that, that connection to business performance, but also prompted by clients and other expectations. But in the private debt world, what does that integration really look like in practice? How, how far have we come in reality? Yeah, ESG integration is a given nowadays. It's gone from being a nice to have to a must have. 
But Kath, do you remember when we began proactive mm. ESG integration yeah. in private credit back in 2013? I mean, we had certain institutional clients encouraging us back then, but we also had a lot of head scratching, even if some of the private equity sponsors who own a lot of our companies were relatively advanced in ESG. I mean, it sometimes felt like we were the only ones making a noise about it in, in private debt. And so, just as now, you know, we, we leaned on wider M&G's ESG methodology and approach in other markets. We got ourselves some good training and involvement from sustainability colleagues and equity colleagues, including those that are running impact funds, to get going with explicit ESG risk assessment, taking it from the subconscious within the general credit process to the conscious, and then organizing it and showing it to clients, which was really the start of our use of the SASB materiality map for risk identification too. And, and now look, you know, we're seven years on, we're well versed in risk assessment across E, S and G pillars. We're still finding that SASB framework useful, but we've now adapted it for internal systems, processes, we've embellished it with our own investment expertise and experience. And we've just launched an ESG company scoring system across the firm, including private companies. We have a very strong engagement program. We're well plumbed into sustainability themes and debates. We've significantly expanded resources and we're part of the lively market dialogue through trade bodies like the LMA or other important institutions more generally like uh, CDP. And we're moving forward with some of the third-party data providers to encourage them to expand private world coverage. So I'd say the momentum in ESG these days in the private world is, is just as remarkable, as palpable as in public markets. And now on the investing side, we're, we're ready to step it up another gear. So looking at um, the best public market practices being a key driver in the progress that we've made in the private markets to date, perhaps. But given the, the broad spectrum that is private assets, it's arguably difficult to generalise about how this all plays out in private credit overall. But if we were to look specifically at the loan market, how, how is an avowedly sustainable or ESG loan investing approach different, would you say? Investing with it explicit ESG objective alongside a financial target. So with an ESG tilt to the strategy or, or a best-in-class filter, yeah, it is nascent for private credit, but it, it's quickly developing. But I think it, it's for investors that are looking to be, as we are as asset owner, part of pushing the market forward. And it's important to have access to companies, sufficient resources to do the engagement, the lobbying, and the risk assessment in-house, and to do it both qualitatively and quantitatively, because for all that third-party data providers are doing more in our space, private credit's still woefully underserved by them. But, but more importantly, their methodologies, as we know, can be, can be very different, very subjective, not always fresh. So, we're using the confidence of the wider firm's investment experience married with our own 
experience and market knowledge, the track record of ESG integration that we have in the private market and the tools, the, the quantitative tools to rank and monitor ESG risk and investment. So we think we know what good looks like uh, and we know how to ask companies with serious intent for for better. So for clients for whom everything they do requires a sustainable bias um, and for those that understand the nature of the private loan market where it is today, then uh, we think they can join us at the frontier and be part of the advancement of where private credit can reasonably be expected to move to. That said, it still takes a leap of faith and that's why a regular way, careful ESG integrated mainstream strategy will continue too. It's an interesting phrase you use there, Fee, a leap of faith. Uh, it's clear that sustainable lending practices are, are nascent, as you've said, in private credit, albeit developing a pace. But is that um, leap of faith, faith that you mentioned for investors something that they can be confident to, to make, do you think, given how much is still changing? Well, in the public equity markets, the logic of a link between sustainability and a company's valuation is is well understood, is is proven by academic and industry research. But yes, in fixed income, in debt, we're talking about investments with with maturities, about dated risk exposure, and and in loans specifically, potentially pretty short exposure at individual instrument level of two to four years. Um, so that's why I say that. And, and, and also in, in private credit, there, there isn't a long track record or proofs of the return effect over cycles of a best-in-class approach versus regular way ESG integrated or, or otherwise either. So I think for an investor to value a sustainable loan allocation right now, there does need to be an explicit equating in their minds of, of the drive to move things forward, as we intend to do anyway as asset owner, as I say, to approach what long-term sustainability means in the public world. So, an, an equating of that aspiration with economic return expectations. All that said, it certainly sounds logical in a very asymmetric asset class like loans that doing all that you can to bolster downside protection yet more by investing in investing class companies and issuing transition sectors or questionable long-term business models could create attractive risk-adjusted returns over a cycle. And we've certainly had 20 plus years of demonstrating that credit conservatism and careful selection has been a market-beating strategy. And for a multi-asset manager, um, a relationship with a company uh, can, through its life cycle, go from very small direct lending club loan through a buy and build growth phase that, that sees a company become a large cap uh, private equity owned entity that might also issue public bonds um, and might ultimately list on the stock exchange. So uh, as an asset manager and owner, we might feature at every stage along the way with that company, even ultimately investing in that public equity. So, so the mindset is always for uh, the long term, and, that, and that's important in planning a sustainability strategy. 
Um, and on the investor side too, you know, no one is tactically allocating to private debt or loans. It, it, it's a long-term strategic multi-year decision typically. And I, I think these things transcend the short-term nature of the individual instruments and, and make long-term sustainability of relevance. And via a robust ESG risk assessment methodology, um, we think that that, uh, that comes together. So we've talked quite a bit about, about integration within private um, assets. Taking it a step further, what about specific ESG instruments? Do they appear in private credit? Do they matter, do you think? Yes and, and yes. Uh, for, for one thing, they're emblematic of the acceptance by the issuer community of the need to disclose and provide data on their progress and sustainability. And their arrival in private credit space is the end of the era when measurement was not required. So descriptive, vague, qualitative statements of intent, they, they don't cut it anymore. So at their best, through these instruments, companies are telling stakeholders that they, that they get that. Um, I'm, I'm mainly talking here about sustainability-linked loans and bonds. Uh, I think these are instruments that are set to define the action in sub-investment grade corporate land because they allow flexibility in their use of proceeds. I'm not saying that we won't also see a rise in so-called use of proceeds instruments, green and, and social loans, I mean. Uh, we will, and we are in an arena that lends itself to startups. Um, for example, like clean tech solution companies. But, but in the main, in Europe, most companies probably won't have the volume of uh, green or social projects to justify a specific financing. So they would, they'd rather formalize their efforts to reduce carbon intensity or Im improve management diversification, um, employee diversification by embedding their targets, their their KPIs into general corporate purposes financing. So we see the engine of growth and momentum being with regular way companies being better and, and showing their plan for this via an agreement to be measured on KPIs. We've seen a lot of comment recently, haven't we, from regulators about the dangers of, of greenwashing, the focus they're going to have on it on um, businesses and on insuring managers are delivering on what they say they, say they can do here credibly. Is there a greenwashing risk in sustainability-linked loans, do you think, though? I think we have to be particularly careful with loans because they have a two-way pricing ratchet. So not only is there a financial penalty if a KPI is missed, like bonds, but in loans, there's also a financial incentive if a KPI is exceeded. So the lender community must be assertive at the start to ensure that hurdles set by a company are meaningful and that this sustainability-linked feature doesn't become a financial engineering tool. Um, but sustainability-linked issuance, it, it's, it's already half of uh, this year's loan issuance overall in Europe. And it, it's a big part, it's getting on for 20% of the US loan market too. 
So these uh, risks notwithstanding, I I think that uh, sustainability-linked instruments are important in illustrating commitment to ESG. But yes, they have to be so much more than value signaling. Commitments made by companies have to be credible, uh, materially stretching, relevant, and the the progress measurement uh, should be independently reviewed to have authenticity. I think second opinions are a crucial part of the use of proceeds world, of the green bonds world, and we think something similar should take place on sustainability-linked loans. How are, how are clients responding to all of this? You mentioned before about the early adopters that we saw here back in uh, our loan funds back in 2013, institutional investors who'd set their stall out, supported by a strong regulatory imperative, perhaps too, looking initially for evidence around integration, which has transitioned into sustainability as an avowed strategy. How would you characterize the client landscape now and how, how asset managers can respond to it? Um, increasingly assertive of uh, a, a responsible investment strategy. Uh, screening out is, is part of it often, but more important is the holding to account of the manager and the setting of expectations for demonstration and for discussion of how we're valuing what is good and how we're backing it with their capital as well as our own, and and how we're part of the solution for driving change in those companies that have good intent, but that may be in um, in transition. And I, I think we we show it to to clients in three ways. We have the tools which permit that all important quantification. And what's exciting and recent and and a step change is that we're able now to to prove, to quantify some of the, until now, purely qualitative assessments we were making and to synthesize uh, relevant ESG risk factors into a scoring system for every company. And that, that isn't a private credit thing, standalone. That's an M&G thing. So across the board, whether public, private, debt or equity issuer, we can weigh up risk and mitigants via a robust, consistent methodology across the firm. Because ESG assessment isn't isn't something you can outsource, really, like, like you might with credit ratings. But for one thing... It, it, as I said earlier, it's very subjective. You, you can see that in the correlation between third-party scores being being very low. And, and for another thing, you have to have real analysts involved in iterative discussions with companies on key topics and, and frequently over time. Um, so these scores, that they're far more live, more, more vibrant than credit ratings. And there needs to be a consistency and comparability and, and a context for, for the metrics. I think targets is is another way in which we're quantifying progress and showing to to clients. So we want to show the state of underlying company target setting over time periods, over the near term, the next three to five years, the medium term, 10 years or so, and the long term. And how by doing that, we can sort of break up the challenges ahead and provide some measurement milestones. Um, so in climate reporting, for example, we're endeavoring to show the the picture right now on GHG emissions disclosure, uh, but also to show the percentage of companies that have Paris aligned science-based targets uh, now and, and then how that's changing over time. 
So I'll, I'll freely admit that a lot of the private company-specific data is based on estimates, estimates derived from an in-house model that, that is looking at the size of the company, the number of employees and the sector, et cetera. But even that allows a starting point and, and some context and crucially a base from which we can initiate engagement and, and encourage, for example, a, a company to hook up with CDP to initiate an ordered disclosure program. And then there's engagement itself. Um, and that's really the, the third important way that we prove a sustainability agenda to clients by showing the, the systematic engagement that's going on, the objectives we have for companies, the progress we've made, the follow-ups we plan, uh, the investment decisions that have ensued. And, and we're fortunate in private credit that we have a close nexus with our companies that, that goes with the territory. Yeah, we might not be shareholders with a, with a vote, but we are relationship lending and we know management. So engagement is, is a core part of a sustainable strategy. And it includes the company owners too, I should say, because private equity with an ESG agenda gets things done across a whole portfolio. So whether it's bilaterally uh, or engaging via industry groups, and you know, we, we, we can't do anything all on our own, um, then there's a leverage effect in nudging forward the owner community too. And, and by engagement, I obviously mean structured meetings with an objective, i.e. the PRI definition of a, of a meaningful dialogue with a company. We, we've touched on it already a little bit, but how might regulation come into play in, in pushing this forward, do you think, in the private sphere? Yes, uh, regulation is uh, is mushrooming. Um, I, I, probably the most significant um, near-term change in regulation is the is the stick that we're about to be given that is um, the improved disclosure that's going to come from the expansion of the corporate sustainability reporting directive. Basically, the NFRD is is going to be expanded and include private companies, and and that's going to quadruple the affected corporates and um, improve disclosure and and improve uh, relative comparison enormously. So to, to sort of wrap up and bring this together, how would you describe uh, your approach to sustainable lending in those funds that you run with that explicit objective? Well, we have to start somewhere and it's somewhat crude for now, but, um, you know, we hope that sophistication will come as reporting and disclosure and benchmarking all developed too. But with, with a sustainable loan strategy today, what we have really is an amalgamation of a, of a tilting approach to favoring those companies via their weighting in the portfolio that are in absolute terms best in class or in, in relative terms to their asset class peers, um, i.e. for their size and maturity um, because remember that a lot of these companies haven't been companies for terribly long. Um, but for their size and maturity, they're leading the way. Um, and that married with an explicit screening out of worst in class or, or, or the laggards. Um, but we have to leave room in this asset class of 
relatively young, fast developing companies, for those with positive trajectory and with a big potential for positive change. So as I say, the optimization through um, will maximize the ESG score by overweighting the strong, high-scoring companies, will leave some scope to recognize improvement, encourage it via engagement. Um, but yes, we set a tolerance threshold for entry into a portfolio to exclude laggards or exclude those not yet at base camp. Um, but leave room to invest and monitor others and ideally hasten their advance via engagement. Engagement has to be a core part of the approach. And then aside from the active um, decisions and management, then there are a, a, a series of negative uh, exclusions, whether that's um, specific sectors on ethical grounds or human rights grounds or um, it's uh, screening out uh, businesses which we consider most sectors not to have a, a sustainable future and uh, including enormous based screens of course too. Well, what does the future look like in this space do you think? Lee? Well for loans specifically what we lack uh, is a sustainability benchmark so a, a class if you like against which to judge a loan portfolio on ESG grounds so that will change and we aim to be part of that change just like we were when the loan market brought in a new index in the early 2000s but for now the assessment has to be absolute on the part of um, a manager and and that means that the approach then has to be founded on a robust overseen assessment so employing the high standards of the best public companies to assess the status of private ones while acknowledging their in their evolution. That's it in a nutshell. We cut them some slack for their youth or for their more limited resources a while, but we still assess them with a framework that knows what good looks like in absolute terms. Um, I think that's only possible for large-scale pan-asset class international asset managers. Thanks so much for sharing your insights. It's a really important topic and one that is most definitely evolving. And as ever, we're keen to continue the conversation with clients and consultants on this. So please do get in touch. Thank you for listening. This podcast is for investment professionals only. For further information, please view the notes which accompany this episode. <laughs>